if we launch an update to Tau fight and then there's like a, a crash somewhere. Yeah. It's really, it's fine. Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 323 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm a damned soul. I'm a Sam. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is August 5th, 2021. Dunk on everyone. I probably got spooky too early. Sorry about that. Just not yeah, you okay. got a few months I'm just, buddy. I'm if I'm feeling the Halloween like vibe, you know, like if you gotta hold your skills of horses at bay. Yeah, we're months away. I know, months away. Uh, Before we go any further, I have to warn her, but it's spooky in this podcast. There's going to be swears and and curses. Um, Yeah, but curses like the the profane kind, but also the. The scary ones. No, yeah, the kind where you use magic to make bad things happen to people. Yeah. Do you guys know Uh about the twelve foot skeleton? That Home Depot sells no. the twelve foot tall human man skeleton, or I guess human person skeleton. But I now have a single item on my wish list. Yeah, well, apparently everybody has this item because, like, I've been hearing stories of people just like every every morning. The first thing they do is they wait is they check <laughs> Home Depot because like spooky times coming up, and that thing sold out. It was like it's like two hundred bucks or something, which. Is a lot of money for a skeleton, but it's not that much money for a twelve foot skeleton. <laughs> yeah, you know? in terms of like dollars per pound of skeleton, I feel it's like it's probably a good deal. deal. Yeah, so I kind of, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. The question is, what would you drape it over? You know what I mean? Like, no, here's because because we have because we so, so we live in these in this these houses that have these eleven foot ceilings, right? So it's not twelve feet; it's a little too short. But it could be hunched over because I think you can pose at least a little bit. But also, we have that. Straight up to the skylight thing, where it goes from the first floor all the way up to the to the roof of the second floor, you know. Mm. So that's like twenty feet, which means it could just be towering in that little space, <laughs> you know. So do it. I don't that's know. pretty good. I'm thinking you about have your it. charge. That's pretty yes. good. Yeah. I mean, what is money for if not to have a twelve foot skeleton? Well, I guess then you don't have money, but yeah, you got a twelve foot <laughs> skeleton. So. Well, yeah, <laughs> I figure I can either like. Have kids and then send them to college and stuff, or, or, I, can, or I can buy twelve foot skeletons. Have a twelve foot. Those are your two mm-hmm. choices in yeah. life. Which there's a fork in the road where you're yeah. going to go. Speaking of money, uh, I'd like to thank our supporters over at MoneyGrab.Bscotch.Net. You know, without you guys, Adam couldn't get his twelve foot skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> so just know that it's going to a good place. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's been adopted and it has a. It, your dollar has a good home mm-hmm. in Adam's twelve foot. I want to see one of those, does. like uh, one of those same things that they do for pet adoption videos, but where it's just a bunch of these big skeletons. Skeletons. They're trying to get you <laughs> yeah, yeah. For ten cents for ten cents a week. You can get a can twelve foot skeleton. Sponsor yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the skeleton is just all sad, laying on. You know, oh my god. Uh-huh. <laughs> there were some pretty good, like yeah, because those, those like those just kind of like uh, human sized skeletons, you know, have been a little more. They've just kind of been more common for the past year or two. Yeah, and last year in particular, uh, around our neighborhood, I was because we again we have these like just tall houses, right? And people had done all these fun things. Of there's there's one there's one house just a few a uh, few blocks down, where on their like I think it was their third floor. Window because the front of those houses are just flat, just like flat, right? And so the front, they had a they had a, like one skeleton like sitting in the windowsill, right? Like on the outside, 
with his, with his hand hanging down, grabbing the hand of another skeleton that was posed to be like climbing up, right? <laughs> As if they were like breaking into this house. And I was just like, <laughs> fuck yeah, that's so good. Ugh, I need more skeletons. Yeah, I feel like we've, yeah, it's like every time Halloween rolls around, we talk about how we wish that this kind of stuff people just would just all do. the time. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just no, need yeah. more spooky stuff. You can you can have a good time for a moment, and then it's back to beige walls, mm-hmm. Manila mm-hmm. folders, yeah, and and clocking in, you know, being serious. Yeah. Uh, now, I think what we want to do today is we just want to do questions. Yeah. You know, or we're, question we're whatever we get to. You know, yeah. <laughs> things are things are such that you know we're somewhat locking down again, uh, and so not a lot of stories. Popping out these days of wild stuff happening. Well, I guess sometimes, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you Sam know, we're just, we'll, we'll just, yeah, we'll just go right into questions. Don't even worry about it. So these questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. If you want to get your question onto an episode, just go over there and vote. Or I guess ask. And you can also vote to, you know. You should do both of questions those things. Up the list. You can also go uh, to bscotch.coffee. There's no, there's no reason that you can do that, but. Since I set it up, I just feel like I should every once in a while just remind people that that's awesome. Wait, well, did there's you no set reason. Up the emoji but, one too. Uh, a cup of coffee. Oh, actually, I think I might have made that. <laughs> I think you made that work. Yeah, there's a. The problem is, well, yeah, we won't get into it because it's a weird technical thing. But the short of it is, is that there's a trick you can use to make it so you can like use emoji as domains, right? But it like it, but it's but it gets converted into regular text to like to work, you know. Mm. And so the problem is that when you actually it's like you'll you can like you can make a link that looks like that and like click it and stuff and it'll go there, but then in the browser URL bar it'll just be some like a combination of letters you know which then looks like crap. So uh, so I actually I did I did technically make one I think it was I think it's the coffee cup emoji right Yeah I think it's the coffee cup emoji but I think it was a coffee cup emoji dot net I think you can technically also go to. Go there. Try it. You know? Yeah, give it a Something shot. Something could happen. But you can also go to bscotch.coffee because you can buy, you know, whatever, anyway. Again, there's no reason to. <laughs> but I just want no you to know, to, I want somebody to do it so that it made sense for me to set that up, even though I mostly Adam, did it to amuse myself. Yeah, Adam set it up for no reason, so you can go there for no reason. Exactly. You end up in the same but place, but yeah. If you do two things for no reason, then they can each become the reason for the other. Exactly. And now you've got mm. reasons. This is a, uh, this is a, yeah. uh, Nonsensical bootstrapping, I think, is the is the. I think that's the, the technical. That's the yeah. industry term. Uh, our highest upvoted question from whatever the domain is uh, comes from Fly Hoppy Axe Rampa, who says, "You bros have talked about how the industry is unpredictable, and even Steam and publishers don't have good ways of predicting success." That being said, Chucklefish is publishing a game called Starmancer that goes into early access on August 5th, which is today, by the way. Ooh. I am 100% confident it will be an instant success and will sell 1 million plus <laughs> copies. Do you agree or disagree? Starmancer. Can you talk about why certain games might feel like a sure thing? Mm, so, yeah. so I'm going to first – okay, so I looked I, – I read this question last week. Uh, and so I checked out the game at that time. Okay. What was your take? So my immediate response was, my take was flip a coin, (laughs) right? Because, uh, uh, it is a simulation game. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, which inherently is a bit more of a niche, and it's a space game, which also uh, has a tendency to bias people toward thinking about it as being more niche as well, like more nerdy, more complicated, complex, whatever. Um, the visual style is pixel art, and it looks great, but also, mm-hmm. again, there are people who uh, bias away from pixel art games, yeah. or and games it, and it kind of has indie, a Terraria e vibe in terms of the art, but it's such a different kind of game that that's not going to like capture the hearts of the Terraria audience necessarily. Yeah, uh, it's being published by Chucklefish, which is the Stardew Valley people. That's the uh, uh, Starbound. It's, yeah, right? it's going to be in the right so audience. Like, Category for that. Oh, and uh, and bigger than because Chucklefish also did. Uh, oh crap! The farming simulator. The the pix, pix, yeah, start start. Oh, sorry, okay, yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, and so like they have a publisher who has uh, a lot of good titles under their belt, right? But also, what people don't talk about with publishers is Chucklefish also has a lot of games published that didn't do anything at all. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Because Chucklefish, like anybody else, they try to pick winners. They don't make the game successful. They try to find games that they that they think could be successful and mm-hmm. provide them with the, the resources to help them realize their potential. Right. Yeah. yeah. But nobody really knows what the potential is. Right. So when I'm looking at when I'm looking at uh Starmancer, I'm like, could be fun. Uh I can see that it would appeal to certain people, but I can also see why it wouldn't appeal to other people. Mm-hmm. And Maybe it's going to sell 3,000 copies. Maybe it's going to sell a million copies. There's, there's, I, but I think it's interesting that you would say that you're 100% confident <laughs> that it will sell a million plus copies uh, because. Yeah, the question is where does that confidence come from? Is it because you know that you want to play this game like, and like really want it and therefore you're extrapolating? Is that like, is that because like I've certainly had this happen where I'll see a game come out. I'm like, fuck yes, this. This concept, I want it. I want to be in that space. I want to do that thing, whatever that is, right? Um, and uh, but that doesn't—that hasn't actually meant that those games that I like really thought looked amazing uh, have been successful, you know. So I'll say at the moment, the game. So it's been out. You know, it launched today early morning. Today, yeah, right? It's got thirty-nine reviews, mixed. Yeah, on Steam, right? And so if you look uh, at Steam so it's not, but but it's also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you look at SteamDB, it's got like uh, around 800 concurrent players as of right now. Nice. Yeah, because yeah, I, so like, I think Steam a, itself is going to probably have a lag on its uh, on its cache for what it's going to show you. Yeah, so that's like that's like a solid starting point, right? It's a yeah. very good. But again, option. you have no idea what the curve is going to do from there, right? Because yep. part of it too is mm-hmm. is is it the kind of game that people can talk about? Is it remarkable? Like, do things happen in yeah. this game that generate lots of really cool, interesting stories that make people go talk to their friends about the game and say, you know, you got to check this thing out. It's, it's amazing. Well, the other thing, too, is when you're uh, looking at concurrent users on launch day, uh, there's some other interesting factors at play because those are just people with Steam keys who are playing it, right? This is launch day. Do you know how many streamers typically get looped in to, like, try to get you know, to try to get people to stream your game at launch, you know? Uh, it's it can be a lot. It can be a pretty pretty mm-hmm. large number depending on your strategy. Also, if you're Chucklefish, then streamers are going to be more likely to then actually play ball and like you know do the thing on launch day because they also might think that this is one of those hundred percent you know likelihood game successes, and they want to be early to that because they want to be yeah. part of that wave of people generating interest and and capturing uh, all of the 
human eyeballs of people looking at that stuff. And so, so, and that, and that phenomenon is also really interesting because that itself can create a feedback loop that in theory could cause a game to be successful, but it also could be a, basically a thing bootstrapping itself. Like we mentioned earlier, right? Where, where there's this premise originally that, that, okay, it's Chucklefish. This game looks great. Uh, a whole bunch of people look at it and they're like, yes, I want this. Right. And so then, then everybody kind of buys in on day one as part of that experience. But then the question of whether after they get that huge group of people, many of whom will be streamers and so on, can it continue? Right. Whether that gets the ball yeah, so rolling they, or whether. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of wish this was like a week later, you know, so we could, so we could well, see. Well, yeah, so we, we can also check back in next week, you know. Yeah. My initial read of yeah. this is, is kind of similar in some ways to, to Seth, but I think it's basically, so like it, whenever we're looking at a game and kind of trying to, you know, play this, play this, play this game, which is like, how well is it going to do? Is it going to work? Uh, I usually look at like just a handful of things, which essentially is the genre that it's in one that works really well for, uh, for that remarkability. So let's talk about, so as far as like, will a YouTube and Twitch audience enjoy this thing? So being a simulation while more niche also creates more user stories, uh, that are yeah. like unique to you. Right. Uh, very remarkable. Depending on the pacing generally. of the game. The problem is that simulations are usually too overly complicated, um, yeah. and so they not they kind of suck the fun out of that fact. Which is why stuff like RimWorld is so popular because it actually creates very easily told narrative stories uh, because a lot of the same things that are happening are happening to characters, right? As opposed to like buildings and stuff. Uh, so I think it's a point for it actually is the fact that it's a sim. Uh, two, our style's good. Um, yeah, it's of course got its own. It's got a flavor that some people could like or not like, but it's a good. It looks good. Uh, three, I went and looked at the um, kind of background of it. So it was kickstarted a couple of years ago mm. um, with like 5,000 backers to the tune of like $160,000, which is like a blowout. Uh, three years ago, I think. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't a blowout. Kickstarter success for video games is really sort of year dependent in terms of yeah. what that looks like. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like 140 grand for the Kickstarter, um, about 5,000 backers in total. Which is probably like, a pretty good video game Kickstarter three years ago. Yeah, right. I mean, I general, mean that, that, yeah. that because basically it shows that the concept, yeah, yeah, the concept has legs. You know, yeah. it could potentially go somewhere. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, but honestly, I mean, it's like it's it's nice that that Fly Hoppy is very hundred <laughs> percent confident with what with everything that we've seen. Again, it's like everything is at best a coin toss. You know, because because there's there's some games where you can look at them and just go, this has no redeeming qualities. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right. And and. Some sometimes that is a matter of personal opinion. Sometimes it's just that like nobody can really find anything about it to enjoy, and it just doesn't go anywhere. But sometimes there are things that that you really love about a game, but actually you are in a tiny, tiny minority. You know, yeah. um, and then there's confusing stuff. Like for for me, I think you know, RimWorld is interesting because RimWorld. Is, I mean, it's just not a good looking game. It's not, mm-hmm. uh, and I. And uh, I think I, I'd mentioned in the past that I think it had hit like 19,000 reviews at overwhelmingly positive on Steam before I was convinced to check it out, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's it's stuff like that where you know, you, you've got people who have certain metrics that when they see a game that they kind of check in with, like Sam was saying, genre, art style, mm-hmm. does it seem like the pacing is fun, stuff like that. Um, but then there's that other layer of social proof where a game that doesn't check those boxes then has to hit some kind of overwhelming threshold of social proof before people then will will and even then disregard their own checklist. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, and even then they still 
often don't because if they like if the thing clearly fits within a genre that they just know they aren't interested in, then you know all the social proof in Even the world then, doesn't yeah. matter. You know, but well, I mean, I've, I've certainly had that experience where there there have been two games that I can remember whose names I will not say on the podcast, but that one that in like the first five minutes of gameplay, I hate. I I was angry at it, right? Which is rarely. I'm, <laughs> I'm a super like tolerant. A uh, laissez-faire person who I'm just like, I try to find the good stuff in there, you know, but I was just, I felt like I was, that they were doing things to me, you know, as in like they, they built bad experiences for me. Mm. Like that's what it felt mm. like, you know, and I was, I was literally angry, which is, I think that's the only time it's ever happened to me playing a game. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, but that game though, small indie title, uh, super successful, you know, it had tens mm. of thousands of, of like, I think it was in the positive, you know, tier uh, of reviews. And so, People love it. A lot of people, but for some reason, something like, and it was one of those things where for me, that discrepancy was like very strong because usually I can like look at a thing and be like, okay, I can see why there's a group of people who like this thing. And even though I don't, because it's just a taste mm-hmm. difference or whatever. Right? Yeah. But this is one of those, this is one of those cases where like, I, I just thought it was objectively bad. It's like, which is rare too. Like it was the first time I thought that I was like, I was like, this is actually bad. It's badly designed. It feels bad. And, uh, but clearly I'm wrong, right? I was clearly, <laughs> that was clearly a subjective, like my own thing kind of response. Yeah, which is very hard to decouple. Which what, is very what, hard to decouple. What's the matter of, what's the matter of taste and what's the matter yeah. of fact, yep. you know? Yeah, this is why, as so. Sam or Seth said earlier, like nobody, nobody knows how to guess what's going to be a winner. And the entire like modern, you know, view of like what it means to sell video games it's just a testament to that. Everyone's the, the, the reason everybody's trying stuff like, oh, I guess let's try a subscription service. Oh, let's try Greenlight. Oh, let's just try opening the floodgates. So you know, like, it's, it's because nobody knows. Nobody, nobody knows. has any idea how to pick the winners and losers. Well, and like, as soon as you figure it out, you're wrong next week. Right? Yep. Like everything's changing all the time. The context is changing all the time. Yeah. So yeah. there's no way to know. Uh, as we get to the next question. Yeah. yeah let's go. All right, next question comes from Fraser, who says, How long do you think is left before something breaks the pre-Crashlands games and it's no longer worthwhile mm. to go back and fix them? Are they still at all valuable, either financially or in maintaining your roots or to your core player base? Mm. I can hit this, this one because this is, this is one we, we argue this is about. A, a constant a conversation. contentious <laughs> internal <laughs> debate. This is a, You've yeah, this opened is, up a can of SpaghettiOs, buddy. Yeah, yeah this, this, is a, this is a contentious one. Um, and so, so I'll, I'll kind of like step through the possible arguments and then, and then we can hit like yeah. what it is that we're doing, right? So, uh, so it is very true that our pre-Crashlands games make no money. Mm-hmm. I mean – not enough to be of use of any sort, especially compared to the cost of maintaining them, right? I think collectively, yeah, well, I don't know. But it's it doesn't not, matter. It's just not. It's, it's all not, together. All together, running, it's not. For a running lot. a company where we're paying people full time, uh, et cetera, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's, or it, even, yeah, it's even just if we were Even if we were like one person part time, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be <laughs> even close <laughs> to enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, so it's, so it's not much, right? And these things, need to be if, if we want them to keep working then we have to keep updating them and make sure they don't break on the stores and all that stuff right uh and so so there's an obvious argument there for shutting those things down which is that it costs us something to fix a bug put out a new build when like there's an ios update or whatever right it costs us something to do that and we are getting zero return from a direct from player kind of way right Okay, so that's one. So let's put that one aside. And then we also have the question of, is it useful just to have a portfolio, 
right? So if we're looking for a publisher, if we're talking to a platform partner and we're trying to demonstrate that we have our shit together and we can, we can deliver, we can like, we can manage, we can do, we can do all the things that are required for us to deal with games. Well, if we have a, if we have a full portfolio of six titles, then that are all up to date and all work and all well rated. And we're able to have a small team just to keep that going. Well, that's a really nice little signal right there that, Hey, look, we, we've got our shit together, right? We could look, we're doing something that's very hard that most studios of our size could not do. Right. So that's a thing. Set that one aside too. Okay. Then the last one, which is deploying games successfully without including horrible bugs. Right. And while going through a Byzantine per platform, mostly manual process to like launch this stuff is all extremely difficult and costly and error prone, right? Mm-hmm. Every time we do it, it's horrible. So <laughs> this is, this is one of those, like, that's one of those signals in like in the DevOps framework, right? Whereas if something is hard, do it more often. That's the idea, right? And, but you don't, this you don't do that for the sake of doing it more often. You do it because by doing it more often, you'll have more opportunities to expose the things that suck and fix them and make them better, right? Uh, versus if you don't do it, then every rare time you do it, which you will try to make more and more rare because of how much it sucks, will be even more error prone and even harder, right? So the so the third sort of thing to 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 use as a as a question of whether or not we should keep doing this is that if we were to only have two games in our portfolio. Neither of which really, one of which is, I guess, three, two that are released and one that's in development, right? Uh, but those, you know, two of those aren't receiving any content updates, and the third one doesn't need to go be fully published. Then we only need to actually do deployments once a quarter, just sometimes, yeah, once a year, right? Just not right. very often. And so, so we just don't need to. So if we have the whole portfolio, and part of our our strategy is to have a like basically a, a maintenance cycle where every month, every whatever we uh, or every other week even we just like take one of these games, uh, integrate it with all the latest updates to our core uh, shared code base, run it through our QA system, run it through our pipeline, run it through publishing, like run it through all of this stuff. Then now, if something has changed with like how publishing works on a platform, oh, we we see that we detected that now. Now we know it; it's now baked into our system, right? If something goes wrong in part of that process, then we see that too. And also the damage that it does to us is not very high, right? For two reasons. One is it wasn't a large batch collection of a whole bunch of broken things, right? And two, it's in games that aren't making any money. Yeah. If something right? if so if we launch an update to Tal fight and then there's like a, a crash somewhere. Yeah. It's really it's fine. <laughs> yeah, our, our, which is which our is hundred the, players will be, you know, upset, right? But yeah. Uh, so it's interesting because yeah, our games do have a shared code base. We call it the B Scotch pack, but we also have uh Rumpus code. So that's our you know our web code that talks to our our login system and stuff. All of our games have it. Um and yeah, it is the case that that there is something to be said for having a low risk way to put updates and to test test updates for those things in a public environment, mm-hmm. yeah, right, in a player facing way, because it's it is far worse if if we uh, accidentally introduce a major bug into Crashlands or Levelhead, uh, as compared to in Tower Fight Two, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, and so uh, so it it. it it is a way for us to just sort of routinely do that uh, pretty cheaply and get feedback. And like Adam said, keep the pipes hot 
keep moving things mm-hmm. through our deployment pipeline, remain familiar, develop better practices with how the storefronts work. In this case, it's just, you know, uh, Google Play and iTunes because all of our old games are only on those platforms. Yep. Um, so it is still the case that that what those games don't do for us in that area is they don't keep our uh, our pipelines warm for things like deploying to Nintendo Switch or Xbox or whatever yep. because mm-hmm. they're not there, right? Yep. So will we put them there? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, that's also is, part of why we just deploy more often with with crashes and levelhead, right? Is uh, is to check all those pipes. So there's so now there's an argument here for like, well, given that crashes and levelhead do are the things that support the studio and that they are the ones that are on all the, all the platforms. Um, could we just instead just do uh, more regular maintenance patches on those that are just, you know, minor bug fixes, adaption to studio changes, upgrades to the, to the game engine, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and then still get rid of the portfolio. And mm-hmm. the answer is a two parter. One is, well, yes, we could do that. But the other one is, is there's another one of those components of that process is the integration of changes that have been made to that root shared collection of, of assets um, and, uh, and, and code. And so if we only have to do that twice, right, that's very different than having to do it six times. Um, it changes how we think about – It changes how we think about everything. Our integration process. Yeah. So basically how, how easy it should be to integrate that code into the games. Right. So kind of where, yeah. where basically where I have been, the place where I have come to, so the place where Sam has mostly been is like, let's ditch this old portfolio. It's, burn it it's, down. It's horrible. Burn it down, right? And the place where I'm at is basically uh, keep it until it's not hard anymore, right? That doesn't mean it's like something we would like enjoy doing or it doesn't take time, but just as in like get it to the point where it's no longer causing stress and anxiety every time we need to update something and get a release out. And once we're there, okay, well, now that, that really big use utility for these things of – keeping everything running and helping us identify and fix problems. Well, that now that's a very low leverage aspect, which means now yeah. the whole thing is low leverage, which means now we can, we'll probably need to sunset the portfolio. Which honestly point. may, it may be a matter of like once, uh, once we get Crashlands 2 out the door, whenever that is or whatever that looks like, um, you know, that may be a sort of inflection point where we evaluate, have we hit that, uh, have we hit that stride? Is it time to do something about all these older games that just don't have, you know, much of an audience or, or traction or revenue anymore? And, um, you know, there will there'll be points that happen in the future where we have to think about these things. But like mm-hmm. Adam said, the value of these is that we have to continuously bump up against them and feel how bad of a job we're doing in some areas. Yeah. And having to do a bad job at something a lot of times makes you really – Look hard at it yeah. and try to make it better, right? Yeah, because the idea is that once we have Crashlands 2 out, now we have three games that we definitely have to keep supporting for quite some time. And so – We want to be good at supporting games. That's a lot of, that's a lot of <laughs> games for a small team, right? And yeah, we need to be really, really good at it. And so if we can get really good at it with six to the point where the we're just three like, is no problem. Yeah, to the point yeah. where we're just like, okay, this is no big deal. Like it's just like – it just – it takes – a finite amount of time, we, we have like a maximum amount of trust. We know what that trust level is. We know it can't be any better. And and so now we know that if we just cut these out, we we can just like say, okay, well, we just get this time back. And then that's that's the consequence, right? Um, so yeah, that's the that's yeah, my, that's my that plan. It's a, is that it's a Jevons paradox problem where uh, having the extra games present currently and uh, using them as a practice engine is definitely useful. But also does beg the question uh, of actually, if you're saving any time, 
downstream at all because of the fact that you're it's the Jevons paradox issue, right? Which is if it's easier to uh, to make use of a resource, then you just do it more. Which to me is exactly what what the intended outcome of this discussion has been and is. And this is why I always push back on it uh, because all of the other stuff stacks up actually in a hard no category. Where as far as like making money, no, they don't make money. Do does anybody actually care about the fact that we have these portfolios? Doesn't seem like it as far as all the people we've ever talked to. The only thing they ask us about is Crashlands. That's it. Uh, or Levelhead if they're keen on what we've been working on recently. So that one's out the door too, which leaves really to me the fact that there's this idea that they're a practice tool. But again, they're only deploying to mobile uh, and there's there's a lot of them as opposed to like if you wanted to have just a practice tool then, and the end result is to try to have three games and why not get really good at making three as opposed to uh, really good at make at this whole six thing because it's probably a Jevons paradox thing where if, if you make it easier to do, you're just taking the same amount of time to do it with six as you would with three, etc. So that's where I've always come from on it where I'm like, I would like to yeah. just burn these down. I think, I think you got to be careful with the Jevons paradox because it it's easy to, it's easy. Well, both, both in like having it happen to you, but also how you interpret it. Right. Because it's a, it's an easy hammer to wield that is very easy to start to interpret because if you take this, if you if you just take it the way that, that we're currently talking about it, like, okay, well, if we make things well, easier, then before we go right. further, we should probably make sure that our listeners know what the Jevons paradox oh, yeah. is, because yep. we mentioned it quite like quite a long time ago. So, just to clarify, the Jevons paradox is the idea that you can never save time or resources by making something more efficient, because making something more efficient just increases your propensity to use the thing. So. Classic example is a city tries to reduce traffic by adding more lanes to their roads. Well, more lanes in the roads means that for a brief moment in time, traffic is lighter, which encourages people to buy more cars because commuting is more of an option now. And then within a few months, the roads are clogged right back up again, right? Mm -hmm. So you cannot, you cannot make it – for example, you can't make it easier for people to get to work by adding more lanes. It's just – it's always going to be – kind of the same. Yeah. Uh, but again, like there are now more cars getting to work in the same amount of time. Yeah. But each person is still having an equally bad time. Yeah. And this, and this is the before. nuance. <laughs> this is the nuance of the Jevons paradox to be really careful about because yeah. if you if you choose if you're focused on because the Jevons the Jevons paradox is about a certain kind of outcome, which is how fast can we move an individual car through this pipe, right? Because you the can't. point there is you is you if you increase the number of lanes to do that, well now more cars come in and so then it comes like it balances back out or whatever, right? And of course, like that's a simplified thing because the reality is like maybe it still ends up better, maybe it ends up worse, even like there's right there's not it's not it's not literally gonna just directly counteract, right? Mm -hmm. Um so so the Jevons paradox is a is a conceptual uh fairy tale in the sense of like giving you a warning like fairy tales do. You know, they're like, look out, this is a thing to be careful of. No, it's just a tool. But it depends, yeah. Because it's so, it's just a heuristic. Um, but it depends on the thing you're trying to accomplish. Because if your goal is to is to reduce amount of strain or basically reduce the cost of a thing because you just like think that its cost is too high, right? Then if that thing is something that will get used more once the cost is lower because it's like working at capacity, right? Then that's the point of Jevons paradox. Is basically you can't reduce the amount of work that thing is doing. Right, it doesn't mean you can't reduce the amount of work the system puts through the whole thing because you did. You changed how much work can go through the bottleneck. You didn't change how much work the bottleneck is doing, but it's doing it more efficiently and putting out more stuff, like a road's putting out more cars or you know whatever. And so, so this is one of those things with the Jevons paradox that it's a yeah, it's 
It's you're a not good saving heuristic, time, but it's you're always spending the same amount of time and resources. Yeah. you're just changing the throughput of the right system, and that's the cautionary right. tale of the Jevons paradox. Right? Is is that which is so to bring that back to the to the games? If we have the pipeline of how we get things through, uh, is really more is made more and more and more efficient. Then there are, there are a few possibilities there. So one is because it's so efficient, we now just do a lot more deployments of our other games, right? Uh, but if we're doing that, well, why are we doing that? It's presumably because we think it's good to do more deployments, you know, of all of those games, right? And now we can, which is good. The other one is we do fewer deployments because we don't need to. But now every time we do it, it's more dependable and less costly and less just anxiety-inducing of a thing with fewer errors downstream, which means that the, also the downstream costs are way lower and the context switching costs are way lower. And the more of it that is automated instead of manual, the uh, less amount of stuff individual people have to do related to it so that their time is freed up to do other stuff. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to saturate some other thing and create some new bottleneck for like QA, for example, if we're producing a lot more. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's a balancing act because the reality is like, it's not good to just is, deploy yeah. for the sake of deploying. There's no point exactly, yeah. to deploying to, for the deploying. So yeah, the and, this, and, this, and this is, there's simply a, yeah, this is actually where we're at, which is, I think it's not the case that I would like to sunset all of the games, for example, right now, but would I kill literally two of them immediately? Yes. I 100% would because I just don't think it matters and I don't think it's worthwhile because I think the balancing point is actually a bit closer to where we're at and where we're trying to get than what we're currently doing, right? But we might be doing a thing right now where like what we're currently doing is sort of is essentially intended to get it so sharp that by the time you get to that, you actually pull it down a little bit that it's just like you said, a much easier thing. Um, but I, I think it's a problem because it, it focuses so much on on making deployments slicker, but again, why, if you actually only need to do deployments like this number of times, really, over the course of a whole year or whatever else, for anything to actually make money, then why are you spending probably some extra, even on top of the extra you're doing to sharpen the engine? Essentially what it is. So this is exactly the internal debate we have all the time about this. Every quarter, I'm like, burn them down. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's, it's always good. about what are we trying to do and, and what are these things doing for us, right? Because because basically what, what, I've, what I've seen from my sort of slightly external vantage point to watching deployments happen is that everybody's unhappy while they happen every time still. Right. And it's terrifying. And they almost always cause a fire still. Right. Uh, you know, here, here this far down the line of how many, because we, we make a fuckload of deployments, right. But they almost all go into QA. Uh, and, and so that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about deploying, you know, into production. Um, and, and the reason that we are now, like, we now have this like really nice list of like, here are a whole bunch of very broken things with how our deployment process works, right? The reason that we found those is because of how many things we tried to shove through that pipe and how once we shoved a thing through a few weeks later, we needed to do it again. Right. And that was the thing. It was that fact that made it so that we were like, fuck, we, we need to actually fix this because when we hadn't been doing that, because we only started doing this with trying to try to add a regular cadence recently, when we hadn't been doing that, and we only needed to do a production deployment every like quarter, basically, then we would see all these really bad issues, have a whole bunch of fires, everybody's stressed, it's a bad experience, and then we'd be like, well, we don't have to do this for a quarter. So yeah, just walk away. Just walk don't away. fix it. <laughs> we don't do it. Don't worry because, about because it. we're all so busy, right? We have we have too much stuff to do. It's not worth fixing this thing that we'll just only do once a quarter, right? And so, so for me, that is like, and, and, and I, and I understand that there's, you know, there's a, a very valid critique on the other side of this about like the value of it. But for, for me, from that perspective of like, if this thing is broken, I need, I, I need to make people do it because they won't otherwise. 
And the only way I can see currently to make people do it is by putting lots of, of patches and requiring lots of integrations that go through the system so that, and having that be part of the normal thing, because otherwise people do it as rarely as possible. Understandably. Right. So you're, so you're the result of the thing, thing just being broken. Yes. Yeah, so you're saying basically like when, impl- when deployments aren't a big deal, then it makes sense to sunset yep. some of the older games uh, because at that point we've gotten our processes figured out to the point where we aren't avoiding them. Yeah. I think right. the challenge with that line of reasoning though, is that each game is its own thing still to a large degree. And so when we're on currently like a, like fully basically an eight week uh, cadence for the time of between deployments for a particular game, right? I don't know that we're getting better at deploying like crash lands specifically that makes sense. Well, you might be getting better at some of the larger scale like deployments. We actually, thing. well, we are though, because yeah. most of the stuff that's broken doesn't have anything to do with specific games, it turns out, right? So the stuff that's broken has to do with like the, the two main sources are integrating the changes that have been made to that shared code, right? Because of miscommunication between developers, right? That happens to all the games, but it's not a game specific thing. And the more we do that, the faster and earlier we reveal the structural problems that are creating these these the problems with our process with the of process yeah. handling of, those changes of yeah. making those changes communicating them and then getting them integrated into some context right uh, and so that so we we revealed a whole bunch of stuff very early by having to do mm-hmm. lots of those integrations um, and then the other one is all of the all of the steps that you go through to do a, a full production deployment through all these platforms because it's like an infinitely long checklist. Little tiny details of like, make sure you got this thing done, this thing done, whatever. And then the post-launch monitoring, which we also realize we basically just don't have pretty much, right? Because we've been operating kind of under the assumption that our systems are so good and our QA is so thorough because we have a lot of QA that that once we get it out there, like it must be in a great state, right? And turns out that's not the case. But the point is, though, that it's, it's actually <laughs> – it actually isn't the games really that have been causing problems. It's been integration of that shared code. And then the deployment through a uh, through a storefront, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so so because yeah, otherwise I, I I agree that like the game if like it doesn't if it was actually the games causing the problem versus structure versus the games revealing structural problems that impact all games then I would agree one hundred percent that like well who cares if we're finding Talify specific problems and fixing those because that doesn't help us with with levelhead right uh, but but what it's actually been is. Is not that that it's been this uh, this this game games wide problem right that's been mm-hmm. revealed so far yeah uh, if we get to the your, point where it's only Talify like that it's, it's it's literally Talify that's causing problems it's like yeah kick, kick that okay shit yeah out. just kick it <laughs> <out>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely yeah uh, yeah no yeah Sam you're not wrong nope I think I think it's, this is all just a, it's a matter of uh, of degrees and kind of yeah where you want to where you want to put your uh, I think everybody's right in their in their cases right yeah. and then it's just a matter of finding some midpoint for now where we can kind of like not you know yeah but yeah but again like the, my, the question is contentious because oh, you guys are good we got some we got some lags so, uh yeah you know the question is contentious because of the fact that um we have so many competing interests here right yep. like personally i want to keep them keep the games alive because I want people to be able to play them. Yep. I think, I think they're good games. They did. They do not make us money. <laughs> no. Uh, they cost us money. We lose money by having those games. Um, 
But, you know, for me, there's an emotional component to it, which is like, I, I want people to be able to experience these games and get, and get that sort of like joy and satisfaction from discovering them and playing them for the first time, which there are still people coming into those games uh, every day, new players. Which, there actually you know, are a lot, lot of people. Like, well, Quadrupus Rampage is played by a lot of people still. It's just that. Yeah, Quadrupus is still it's just, just It's a free-to-play, badly monetized game. So, you know, yeah. you can't, um, can't convert I, you that know, to money. And so, so I, I just think, I, I kind of think about it more as like, to me, I, as a game studio, I want to have our games out there, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And and it is it is a cost right now, and so of course there's that component. I I want to do right by our players, but also I don't want to harm myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a competing interest because right now that's what's happening. Yep, right, <laughs> right. Um, and then there's the then there's the question of well, if we're gonna have these games, can we try to like get some good out of them, even though they're expensive and like we're losing money on them, which is kind of the the Adam angle, right? Mm-hmm. Sam's on the cut and run. Uh, yep. angle, which is also valid. Like these are all valid and every, and we all have different metrics by what we think, uh, yeah, we're, yeah, we're the not costs and benefits are right. You know? We're just, we're not quite in alignment on the question of the portfolio, but, yeah. but the beauty is that at, at the moment, because of the resources we have, because of what we're doing, uh, we don't actually need to be because it's okay for us to keep them and use them for this current, current purpose that I've been pushing for, because the, that doesn't actually hurt the studio because it doesn't, it doesn't, dramatically impact Seth and Sam's time. And when it has impacted yep. Seth's time, that's it has been, been that's with been, Crash or Levelhead. That's been for Crash Lands or Levelhead, right? So yeah. actually <laughs> the cost of the portfolio itself actually, uh like the, the like literally the games. Like we've been talking about them having a cost and so on, right? But they actually really don't. It's it's yeah, the, if, we, if we measure it out by hours of like dev time, QA time, whatever, because they're only on two platforms each and those are easy platforms to deploy to and stuff like yeah. that. They are they are far cheaper to deploy than Crash Lands and Levelhead, and they have a lower propensity of of having snags because they're much simpler games. Yeah, uh, but it, it still is the case that if you, yeah, even even at a low cost, if you compare that to the revenue, like they still just aren't going <laughs> to break you. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean it's 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 complicated, you know, it's, and it's yeah, only going to get more complicated problems. as time goes on because yeah, yeah, game number seven, what do you do, right? Yeah. Uh, so yep. I don't know. Uh, all right, let's hit one uh, last question. We got to be a little bit, you know, quicker on this one because we're we're nearing the end of the of the hour. But uh, this is from Beaky Bop Boop. What would you say are the studio's design principles? As in, what are the core tenets of how you look at game design or art design or studio design? Do they overlap? Mm. I can hit studio design because that's the only one I can comment on, <laughs> and also that's Go. new because that's what I've been trying to figure out. Um, so the, my, my pillars of studio design currently are visibility is just number one because that's the big, the big lesson from everything we've ever done is everything that sucks sucked first because we couldn't see it. That was always the first reason, right? So it's visibility number one. And then the, and then the uh, quality of the human experience is number two. And number one really serves number two so we could flip those if you wanted to. Uh, but those are like those are my, those are for me the driving like pillars of design, which is that the work should be visible and and as pleasurable as is literally possible. Because of course not everything can be right, but like but but that's that's it. So those aren't so much like designs as they are design pillars, right? Of like what are the the metrics by which we try to gauge how things should work and how things should be run and what people should be doing. 
So yeah. that's what I got for the studio yeah. side. Yeah, and that's actually that's the top the top principle we have in our studio principles, which I have framed on my wall here. The top principle is love the work. Yeah, which which can be taken in two ways. One is uh, that the work is what it is, and and you're supposed to just love it, which <laughs> is of course nonsense. Uh, it's more that that you should be looking at your work in a way that if you're not loving what you're doing, then figure out what's wrong with the thing that you're doing mm-hmm. and try to try to fix it so that you love it. Um, because there's a lot of interesting stuff in, in uh, just about any line of work that you can try to like find other angles or improvements, make improvements to the process to make it more fun and enjoyable to work on. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree. Uh, what would you say? On I think for game design, stuff. Mm-hmm. For for games, yeah. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about this, and I gave a talk at GDC a few years ago called "Designed by Chaos," which was about the idea of basically going in with minimal plan and kind of iterating your way to to a game. Right? Uh, that kind of comes from like the game jam mentality, whatever. I've recently realized that what we call designed by chaos is actually designed by ADHD, which is um, <laughs> uh-huh. there's these these four these four pillars of motivation for people in general, but that are really pronounced in people with ADHD, which is the ICNU principles. Uh, did we talk about these? I don't think on the podcast. Be, uh, I don't go so, ahead. Just spell it out. So 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 the idea is that is that for someone with ADHD, uh, you generally have a really, really hard time doing something unless it has one of these, at least one of these four properties that it's interesting, uh, that it is challenging, novel, or urgent. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, so what that means as someone with ADHD making a game is that I find creating a giant design document pretty uninteresting and not very challenging. Right, uh, and also it's not urgent because the idea of making a giant design document is uh, it's taking a really long view on things. There's no urgency in this, right? Yeah. Um, I think also, a design document properly implemented it is extremely challenging, right? Uh, yeah, it's well, not that it's not challenging, but it is like it's not. But if you don't find it interesting, if it's not the it, thing you want to be doing, then you know that can still be. Yeah, well, it, it depends on your your like measurement of what it means for something to be challenging, which is kind of a, that, that one's kind of, it's kind of tough to get into the nuances of, because yeah. for example, like it's challenging to maintain a routine to go to a, the gym every day. Right. But what's challenging about it is how boring it is. Yeah. I mean, right? Which is, a, which I, is like, yeah, well, I mean, well, yeah, yeah that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying though, is, is that, yeah. is that each person has kind of like different metrics for what it means for something to be challenging in a stimulating way. Yeah, exactly. Right? Cause it's, it's a, yeah, it's, um, it's a particular kind of challenge. It's not, it's not about just that it's hard to do. Yeah. Uh, it's actually more about the flow state of something, uh, meeting your skill level in a way that you find your progress satisfying in yeah. there. Um, so, so what I found is that when it comes to designing a game, uh, it's more about it's more about playing the game and being sort of um, aware of how the game is hitting me emotionally, and then reacting to the current state of the game. So, is there something about the game that is sort of not checking one of those four boxes, right? Uh, do I feel myself motivated to progress while I'm playing a game or are there things in the game that are just kind of boring or not very interesting, not very challenging? 
have I been seeing the same things all the time? In other words, no novelty, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I only learned about this ICNU thing recently, but it actually turns out that that is kind of those, – those four things are really nice and easy sort of uh, lenses to look at as you're, as you're playing your, your own game and evaluating whether it's doing the job, right? Are you – do you feel like you're experiencing at least one of those things? Well, I think this is uh, also a good uh, – that's sort of a good lesson with the idea of this question of like what does it mean to do something the right way, right? Because you have, a, you have people who like – Hardcore advocate the the mo like you need a design document that's a required part of development and anything else is amateur and there's you know and like and the only possible outcome is bad if you don't have one right and there are people who who've told us that the only reason we've gotten away without design docs uh, is because of how small our team was or because of the game design we ended up with or or whatever right and uh, and that actually you know is there's some truth to that certainly mm -hmm. and and maybe a lot of it but that's actually all by design, right? Because if we if we were working on a huge project with a team of a jillion people and we needed to be able to hand down commandments from above to actually get it to all work, right? Then we would have to work very differently. And yeah. we all having ADHD, you know. Maybe wouldn't love that work. We wouldn't love that work. <laughs> we, we wouldn't be able to do a really good job of it. Um, and so – so it's not that there's a there's a right way for there's not a right way there are better and worse ways with in terms of outcome person. for each mm -hmm. person in each context right agreed and what we've what we've been doing our whole time you know building the studio is that is we get to control our own context to I mean to an extent we, we don't get to just say oh we want to hire ten people and then somehow have the money to magically do that or whatever right but but we get to for, to a really large degree control our context and how we do the stuff and so we get to make those two things match. Um, we mostly have been doing it on, I guess, subconscious, not subconscious, like uh, kind of happening into it, right? Because like we would do stuff and try stuff and then it would work or not work. And that's kind of how we would progress. Or we would do stuff because that's just how we did it. And that's how it our, felt right? like the right thing. It felt do. right. Which now in retrospect, you can definitely see, as I've said, uh, mm -hmm. so much of how we've designed our studio and like this, the fact that we just like really, we're really keeping it small. The way we design our games, the way we do all of our stuff, the, the, our heavy push towards automation and structure, all this kind of stuff, which are like are really good in a more objective sense too. But the reason that's so important for us to do all of it is actually because we all ADHD have ADHD part, right? <laughs> because <laughs> because we can't fill in that like because a, a person that doesn't have an ADHD brain can fill in a lot of these gaps and make it so that the absence of structures and the absence of automation are it's no totally big fine. deal. It's fine. Like yeah. you can still yeah, you're still fine. But since we can't. Then we have to do th then we have to do things differently, right? Uh, yeah, so I think it's 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 the one of the big important takeaways, which is no two people are the same. There's no rules. Yeah, you know? and these are yeah these aren't like the right design principles. These no. are just the ones that happen to we've settled easiest, into. Yeah, they happen to be the easiest for well myself to engage with uh, as someone with the kind of brain that I have. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, like I said, game design documents work great for some people, for some teams, for some scales of operation. Um, other teams like to do things fast and loose. Uh, you know, it's all valid if a good game come, comes out at the end. And people don't have a terrible time. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> yes. again, back to Adam's uh, human experience. Yeah, focus, get right? that human experience up. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's all the time we have 
for this week. Uh, yeah. We'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Jen Coster, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net. We have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.